Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have uh, white paperback Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, go ahead and grab one of those and turn to page 591. That's where our passage this morning is found. 1 John 1, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 10 today. We all have uh, embarrassing stories to tell from our past, I think, and um, your pastor is no exception, so I'm going to share kind of an embarrassing story here with you. Um, When I was a teenager, 13, 14 years old, was hanging out with my friends uh, one night, and we clearly didn't have enough to do, so we decided that we'd go out and throw things at cars. Uh, So we were in Carmel. We went out near Keystone Avenue there in a little cul-de-sac area behind a fence and uh, just started finding, you know, whatever we could and hurling them at the cars going north on Keystone Avenue. And so that lasted for some time. Uh, And then I remember very distinctly turning around at one point and noticing a police car driving down the road at a high rate of speed in our direction. And I turned around looking for my friends and they had already taken off running. And so I had to make a very quick decision whether to stay there or go with them and so I chose to run. So I'm running across this uh, backyard area in our neighborhood and again it's nighttime. It's It's dark, so you got to be really careful where you're running. But then just all of a sudden, the whole backyard just got filled with light. I mean, it was like the sun rose all of a sudden. It was just this burst of light, and it stopped me in my tracks. I turn around, and I see that the policeman had had pulled out his, you know, spotlight, this enormous spotlight that just illuminated the whole area. And there I was in the light, caught totally exposed, and the policeman yelled something, stop or freeze or something like that, and so there I was having to make another decision, you know, what am I going to do here, am I going to stay here, or am I going to take off, I knew I was caught, but I decided to keep running, and I turned, and I ran back into the darkness, and my friends and I kind of went through a circuitous route into the woods, and eventually we got caught, but Um, We we managed to escape for a time. Um, So not not anything that I recommend. Don't don't think, you know, that you need to model everything in my life. And that's one thing that I don't want you doing, particularly kids here today who who are listening to that. The reason I tell you that story is because it illustrates um, the difference between light and darkness. And the Bible very frequently uses this metaphor, as this description of light versus darkness. Over and over again in the scriptures, we see these two things given to us. The book of Colossians chapter 1, for instance, describes conversion to Christianity being a transfer out of the kingdom of darkness. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, walk as children of light. And in John chapter 3, Jesus says the light has come into the world. But then it says this, one of the most, I think, troubling verses in all the Bible. It says that people loved 
darkness more than light. And in that case, I, in the story I told you, I mean, I, I preferred the darkness to light. I ran out of the light and into the darkness. And that passage is telling us something that's very true of us as sinful people in this world. We crave darkness and we flee from the light. So this is the question that's put before us. How do we know the difference between the two, walking in the light and walking in the darkness? We're beginning a sermon series here on the book of 1 John called That You May Know. We started this last week. And I told you last week that this letter is being written to give us assurance, confidence in what the gospel is and where we stand before God. It is possible to know certain things, spiritually speaking, and that's why John wrote this letter. And so now the question before us today is how can we know whether we're in light or in darkness? And what John does is he gives us in this passage we're about to read some diagnostic tests that we can use to examine ourselves to try to answer that question. You know, I wish that I could give you like a spiritual thermometer of something and take your spiritual temperature and kind of bring it out and, and give you a, a number count on how you're doing spiritually, but it doesn't work that way spiritually. Physically it works that way, but not spiritually. Spiritually, when we try to take our spiritual temperature, we have to administer self-examining diagnostic test to answer the question of whether we're walking in the light. And so that's what this passage does for us. If you please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God, would you please, by your spirit, shed light into our souls that we might behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, diagnostic tests that John has given us, tests that we can use to examine our spiritual condition. Three tests that he gives us, and we're going to go through each one of these. The first test is this. Are you lying to others? Are you lying to others? So let, let me explain. Uh, the passage begins here in verse 5, and John says, this is the message that we have heard from him. That him is referring to Jesus. John is an apostle. He's gotten this message from his Lord, and now he is proclaiming it to the church. And the message is this, God is light. Now, we should be careful how we interpret this. This doesn't mean that the light that emanates from a light bulb or from the sun is divine. This isn't calling us to worship light. This is a metaphor. And what it's telling us is that there are similarities between light and God. 
So just as light, for instance, sustains life, so does God. And just as light illumines our path and gives us clarity about where we're going, so does God. And just as light exposes what is there, so does God. And just as light displaces the darkness, like what happened to me when the light shined into uh, that backyard when I was caught by the policeman, so does God. He displaces darkness. And in fact, it says at the end of the verse that in him there is no darkness at all. Light and darkness do not coexist, and God does not coexist with darkness. And then John moves here in verse 6 to the diagnostic test. This is what he presents to us. And it concerns this, this reality, and it's this, that there are some people who claim to be Christians but whose lives, the pattern of their lives, do not reflect that. And so here's what he says in verse 6. If we say, so this is the test, if we say we have fellowship with him, now, you might remember from last week, to have fellowship with God is basically just to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know God, to walk with him, to have personal relationship, to have fellowship. So that's what John is talking about here. If we say we have fellowship with him, in other words, if we say we are Christians and yet we walk in darkness. Now, what does that mean? Walking in darkness. So that's a metaphorical term. What? What is he referring to? I, I would say this. To walk in darkness means that the behavior in your life, the actions of your life, the decisions that you make, the goals that you set, your entire lifestyle, if, if all of that is lived independently of, apart from any reference whatsoever to what the scripture says, independent of fellowship with other Christians, independent of any kind of prayer or call upon God to guide or lead or show you the way, any kind of lack of concern for God's approval and God's glory, if that is your life, you are walking in darkness, John says. But if you're a person who is claiming fellowship with God, claiming that you're a Christian, and yet that's what characterizes your life, you're walking in darkness, what John says is, you're a liar. Do you see that in verse 6? Blunt language, I know. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie. And so this is the test that John is presenting to us. Is your life a lie? Are you living a double life, proclaiming one thing, but living in an entirely different way? Now, let me clarify what I think John means here when he talks about walking in darkness. These words, walk, and then later in verse 6, um, practice the truth, do not practice the truth. Those words walk and practice, those have to do with ongoing habitual behaviors. These are persistent patterns in somebody's life. So I don't think John is talking about that time or those times when in the heat of the moment you just in frustration just lose it and blow up at your kids or your spouse or your roommates. I don't think this is talking about 
that time or even those times when you felt like maybe you ought to share the gospel with somebody and you were just too scared and you decided not to do it. I don't think this is referring to those dry periods in our lives where sometimes we get to the point where we just don't really feel like praying that much or reading the Bible that much. We don't feel like God's very close. God seems distant from us. And we go through periods and seasons in our life where that happens. That's not what John is talking about here. He's not talking about the frequent sins that Christians fall into repeatedly throughout their lives. That's the common experience for all Christians. What he's talking about is, again, a pattern of persistent behavior, life lived without regard for God and his ways. Maybe you come to church on Sundays and the preacher makes you think about godly things for 30 minutes or so, but then Monday through Saturday, he never comes back into your mind. He never enters your heart. You never think for one moment about what God might want you to do or might not want you to do. That's walking in darkness. And I think what John is talking about here, quite frankly, is a false profession of faith. People who claim to be Christians but aren't. And you know, every church has people like that. They've come and they've made the profession, they say the right things, they walk the walk and talk the talk, but their heart is far from God. I mean, Jesus talks about this, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 7, where he says there's going to be people who are going to come to me, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name, do that in your name? Didn't we do all these great ministry things in your name, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you, depart from me. I never knew you. You never had fellowship with me. You never came to me and brought your sins to me. We didn't have relationship together, even though you did all these things. Another good example of this is Saul from the Old Testament. You remember Saul made all the right professions of faith. He said all the right things. But what was he doing in his private life and public life? He was building a monument to himself in his pride. He was um, consulting a witch. He was practicing the occult. He was having priests murdered. 85 priests of Nob, it tells us in 1 Samuel. That's a man walking in darkness. That's a man whose life was a lie. And what John wants us to do, even as Christians, even as faithful members of the church, is to step back and examine ourselves. Am I lying to others with my life? That's the first diagnostic test. Second test, are you deceiving yourself? Are you deceiving yourself? So again, here in verse 8, we have uh, this phrase, if we say. So it seems like what John is doing here as he uses this phrase, if we say, it happens repeatedly in this passage. Um, He's probably aware of what the false teachers in the church were saying. And I told you about that last week, Gnosticism, right? There were false teachers called Gnostics, and they were in the church disrupting the church, teaching this false doctrine. John probably knew what these things were, and so he's taking what the Gnostics and the false teachers are saying and saying, now, if you say this, or if we say this, here's what that means. And so he does this again here in verse 8, and he says, if we say we have no sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves. He's not talking about lying to others in this case, not deceiving others, 
but deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, this is really tricky, isn't it? When we start talking about self-deception, I mean, how do you awaken somebody who is in the midst of self-deception? People who are kind of lying to themselves, it's very difficult to get them to see that because they're in the practice of deceit. And really, it's only a move of the Spirit of God that, that can do that. But what John is saying is, if you want to know one surefire way to know if you're deceiving yourself, it's, his, it's when you deny sin in your life. It's when you deny that people are sinners and you deny that you're a sinner. If that's your mindset, you are deceiving yourself. Now, the Bible talks about this, quite frankly, uh, in many places. Galatians 6.3 says this, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Those who hear the word but don't do it are deceiving themselves. So this is common throughout the scriptures. And others have noticed this too, just famous people in history, the great writer Dostoevsky, lying to ourselves is more deeply ingrained than lying to others. We lie to ourselves probably more than we lie to others. It's easier to do. You don't get caught quite so often when you're lying to yourself. Leonardo da Vinci said the greatest deception men suffer is from their own opinions. We love our opinions. We cling so strongly to our opinions. It's hard for us to imagine how we can be wrong. And sometimes when we cling to these opinions, we end up deceiving ourselves. Very easy to do. You've seen it happen. Here's a kind of a easy, I think fairly harmless example of self-deception. Maybe you're have had this experience where you've woken up in the morning and you're tired and the alarm goes off and you reach over and you hit the snooze button. So the snooze button goes about nine minutes, I think, and so nine minutes go by, and the alarm goes off, and you hit it again. And it starts to occur to you that, you know, you're going to have to get up sometime, and you got to make breakfast, and you got to get dressed, and you got to walk the dog, and you'd like to have your Bible reading and prayer time, and you got to be at work at a certain hour, but you tell yourself, I can do all that, in 20 minutes, and you hit the snooze button again. And the amount of time you have to get ready, it's dwindling. But what you're doing during that time is you're telling yourself what you want to hear, because you want to sleep. And so you start convincing yourself of absurd things. And then you wake up later, and of course you're rushing, and you don't get everything done, and you're probably late for work. And you look back and you remember the way you were thinking, lying in bed, hitting the snooze button, and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? Well, what you were doing is telling yourself what you wanted to hear. You were deceiving yourself. And that's really the essence of self-deception, telling yourself what you want to hear. Now, we can see more serious examples of how self-deception occurs in our lives. There's the example of uh, the drug addict or the porn addict who tells himself or herself, I can quit anytime I want. And what that gives is the illusion that you're in control of the situation. And so you think you can quit anytime you like, and since that's the case, then I have liberty to keep doing it, and I can stop when I want to. But the fact is, 
you're addicted. You can't stop when you want to, and you need help. But in the meantime, you're telling yourself what you want to hear because you want to perpetuate that addiction. Another example, the, the workaholic, the person who is always away from home, always working, telling himself, telling herself, I've got so much to do. I've got so many things on my plate. I can't go home for any length of time. I have to wake up real early in the morning and get to the office, and I have to stay at the office until 8 or 9 o'clock, when really what's happening is you don't like being at home. You've got issues with your spouse and issues with your kids, and you don't want to be reminded of those things, and you want to stay away. You want to escape from that situation. So you tell yourself, I just have so much work to do. It's what you want to hear because it gives you an excuse not to go home. Another example, the atheist. The atheist is a perfect example of a self-deluded, a self-deceived person. Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19 says that the, the, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and that God's invisible attributes are clear through what has been made. What those passages tell us is that the atheist knows that God exists, but according to Romans 1, the atheist suppresses the truth. That's self-deception. The atheist is saying, I don't want there to be a God because if there is a God, I have to submit to him. And so what I want to hear is that there is no God. And so I'll suppress the truth in wickedness. All examples of self-deception. And what John is telling us, giving us this test, when you start denying sin in your life, it's proof that you're self-deceived. So how do we do that? How do we deny sin in our lives? Well, I mean, that can happen in, in a variety of ways, and I would love for the life groups to kind of tease this out and talk about it um, more. But again, recall the Gnostics from last week. I told you that the Gnostics believe that the human problem is not sin, but the body. We're all trapped in physical bodies. Physical matter is the problem. But really deep down, there's something divine in us. Our spirit and our soul is not sinful. It's the body that's the problem. That's likely what the Gnostics were teaching and probably what John is referring to here, those who say they have no sin. But there's other kind of subtle ways I think we sometimes do this. Sometimes we'll um, you know, blame our sin on a bad day. We'll blame our sin maybe on an addictive personality. We might blame our sin on um, our upbringing, the 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 way our parents treated us or the way our spouse treats us. Uh, we might say something like, well, when I committed that sin, that wasn't the real me. You ever hear people say that sometimes? I did that horrible thing, but that wasn't the real me. In other words, I didn't really sin. This other Jekyll and Hyde kind of person did, but I'm not really responsible for that. That's not the way I really am. Or sometimes we'll look at popular opinion polls and we'll see that certain things that used to be sin are not considered sin any longer among the general population. And so we start to say, well, if nobody else thinks it's sin, maybe it's actually not a sin. And we begin to conclude that this can't be a sin if so many people don't think it is. But this is very serious stuff because look what John says in verse 10. But look the way he describes how serious this is. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. 
and his word is not in us. When we deny sin, what we're saying is that God has lied because God has very clearly said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know when we consider the gospel that the very reason that the Father sent Jesus into the world was to deal with the problem of sin. So when we minimize sin or say sin doesn't exist, really it makes a mockery of the whole gospel. Why would Jesus go to the cross and die a painful, humiliating death like that for something that doesn't exist? He did that because of sin. That's the main problem that God sought to address in giving his son and why it's so serious to deceive ourselves into thinking it doesn't exist. So that's the second test. Are you deceiving yourself? The last test is this. Are you forgiven by God? Another question to ask yourself. Are you forgiven by God? Verse 9. Very famous verse that many of us have heard and maybe even have memorized. It says, if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. Notice he doesn't say, if we try harder. Or if you're true to yourself, or um, if you have all your theology correct, it's not what he says. He says, if we confess, we might pause for just a moment. What does that mean to confess? Do you know the word confess actually just means to agree with? Or according to one lexicon definition that I found, it's to concede that something is factual or true. It's the admission of something in an argument lexicon said. So it's like, you know, you're in an argument with somebody and you believe you're right and you believe that person's wrong and you're going back and forth and suddenly it occurs to you, that person's right and you're wrong. And you stop and you say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. This argument is over. And I concede that what you're saying is true and what I've been saying is false. How many times have you done that in an argument? How much would our personal relationships be improved if we did that? A little more often. And how much would your relationship with God improve if that was something going on more often? Conceding that something is factual or true. Conceding that what God has said about your sin is true. That's what it is to confess. And notice he says, if we confess our sins. Notice the personal pronoun there. Our sins. This isn't just a confession that sin exists. This is a confession that I'm a sinner. It's my sin. It's personal ownership of sin. If we confess our sins, here's the promise. Continuing in verse 9. This is what's promised to confessors of their sin. Look at this. That God is faithful, first of all. He's faithful. What that means is, throughout the scriptures, we have these promises that God always hears the cry of the humble, penitent sinner willing to bring his transgressions to God. He always hears that. And as we're about to sing, in just a moment, God changes not. His compassions, they fail not. As he has been, forever he will be. Something always true of God is that he responds to cries for mercy with compassion. That's the way he's always been. That's the way he always will be. That will never change. 
It is impossible that God would look upon your confession with hardness of heart. He is filled with mercy and grace and sensitivity to that. And that will always be the case. That's what it means when it says God is faithful. He will do what he says he'll do. But then we get, in addition to that, that God is just. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Now, that to me sounds a little strange, actually, because when I think of forgiveness of sins, I don't generally think of justice. Do you? I mean, when I think of God being just, generally I think of somebody being punished. When justice is served, the guilty get punished. That's the way we often think about that. So in what sense is John saying that God is just to forgive our sins? How how do we work that out? Why does he say this? Faithful and merciful to forgive our sins. Faithful and gracious to forgive our sins. I get that. But faithful and just? Well, here's how this works. The fact is, somebody was punished. Jesus was punished. The Father sent Jesus to die on a cross, to bear sin, to stand in your place. And when he shed that blood and was resurrected from the dead, justice was served for your sins and for mine. And God's only option, really, is to forgive the person who comes to him through faith in Christ. That's the only option he has. He has to forgive you. Not that he doesn't want to forgive you, but his justice demands it. It's like years ago, I was having lunch with a friend, Osborne's Cafe, down in Yorktown, and at the end of the meal, the waitress came and said, I have no ticket for you. Your meal is paid for. What? We had no idea. Who would do that? And then we remembered that a friend had come in earlier when we had first started eating lunch, and we talked briefly with this person, and he went over and sat down and had his lunch. But afterward, we thought to ourselves, it was probably him who paid the bill. But, But somebody did, and we got a free lunch. Now, it wouldn't have been right of that waitress to come and say, I'm going to give you the bill anyway. I'm going to have you pay for that. Why? That would be unjust, wouldn't it? Because the meal was paid for. The only just thing for her to do is to say, the debt has been taken care of. It's been paid for. You guys can go free. And that's what the gospel tells us. The debt has been paid. Jesus paid it. When you go to him and confess your sins... Not only does his faithfulness guarantee forgiveness to you, but his justice does as well. So friends, why are we slow to confess our sins? Why do we want to deceive ourselves? Why do we want to pretend it's not there? Why do we want to rationalize it? Why do we want to make ourselves appear better than we are? Take your sin to Jesus. What sin is it? that that he might be calling you to take to him, to bring to him today. If you're not a Christian today, it might be that this has never happened in your life. Maybe you're here, you know you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been at this church for a long time and you've been pretending to be a Christian, but you know that on your knees and in your heart, you've never humbled yourself before God and taken your sin to him. Maybe that's never occurred in your life. It can happen today. 
You can take your sins to him and become a Christian today. If you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for many years, maybe you've been busy, your life has been out of control lately, and honestly, you just haven't given much thought to the condition of your heart. You haven't really been paying attention to how you're doing spiritually. This is a good time to reflect on some sins in your life that perhaps God is calling you to bring and lay down at the cross. We're about to come to the table here, and um, when we do that, we always have a time of silent confession, and so Pastor Brian will be leading us in that direction here momentarily, and I would say that would be a really good opportunity for you, Christian or non-Christian, to do business with God. Take your sins, don't hide it, he's faithful, he's just, He'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, and that, my friends, is the first step to walking in the light. That's the place to start. Take your sins to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, the truth, the grace, the richness, the wisdom, the wonder of your word. Thank you for your gospel and for a great Savior who has done everything necessary to redeem us. In his name we pray. Amen.